How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin tonight, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are in right relationship with the Lord, focused on Him, and make sure that you are walking by the Spirit before we begin our study of the Word. So let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you recognizing that you are the only hope that we have and the only hope that this nation has, and you're the only one who can change the minds of those who are in authority and those who are in government. And we bring these situations before you because we recognize that it just takes a very, very short time for the wrong people to shred the Constitution and to destroy the freedoms that have been fought and uh, died for to preserve in this country for the last 200 plus years. Father, we're thankful that we have you to come to, and we pray that you might raise up men who have wisdom and skill in the law, who can stand in the gap. We pray that you would uh, open the eyes of many people to realize what the real agenda is here, and that is to destroy the influence of Christianity in this country. And Father, we pray for us that we might be calm and cautious but that we might have the courage to uh, stick with our convictions and to stand for the truth no matter what it might cost. And, Father, we recognize that as the days go by that the only solution is going to be your word and the only solution that changes people's thinking and changes the way they look at life is the gospel and your word. And, Father, we pray that you would give us the courage to be faithful witnesses, to be faithful in our a verbal presentation of the gospel, as well as living lives that reflect the, the great joy and hope that we have because of uh, the, what we have in our Lord Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, and all that he's provided for us. And now, Father, as we continue a study of your word tonight, we pray you'd help us to understand what your word teaches, that we may have a fuller and greater appreciation of all that is there. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're not going to be here very long tonight, but we are going to uh, step off here. And that is because over the last uh, last week or two, as we moved out of uh, verse 2, where we talked about three things, the foreknowledge related to God the Father, the second thing was sanctification by the Holy Spirit, and the third was obedience and sprinkling of the blood of, the, of Jesus Christ. Three members of the Trinity are mentioned there. Then when we came to verse 3, we saw this opening statement related to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the more I reflected upon this particular statement, the more I realized that there's, some, there's a lot going on here that is below the surface. And I wanted to probe that. We probed it some last week. I want to probe it a little more and think about this in terms of the Trinity. Now, just to remind you as we get started that this epistle and the first part of it uh, is about living in light of eternity. Throughout this epistle, we have an emphasis on suffering 
And we may very well see an immediate application of that in the next few years as Christians come under uh, more and more direct attack by people in our culture. I'm, I thank God that we're living in Texas because that's going to be less of a problem here than anywhere else. But this is not going to be something that goes away anytime soon. And so the lessons that we're going to learn in First Peter are uh, are necessary. We need to internalize these realities because just like these believers who were uh, living in a hostile environment, we live in a hostile environment, so we have to learn to think biblically, and it takes a lot of time and effort and study to do that, to really get this deep into our minds and into our souls. So, summary in these first, uh, this first section, the introduction, living in light of eternity, means we can rejoice in the midst of the present fiery trial because our love for God enables us to focus on the glories to come. Now, several phrases ought to stand out in that summary I've written. One is the idea of the present fiery trial, and the way we survive it is because of our love for God. Basic principle, to love someone means we know someone. You can't love someone you don't know. And so it's important for us to understand God, to understand how God exists and God's plan and purposes and how he is working out his will in history. So as we drill down a little bit on this opening phrase, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's important to put this into perspective. This isn't just an academic study of what the Bible says. It should drive us to a greater understanding and appreciation of who God is and should drive us to greater worship. So in 1 Peter 1.3, Peter starts off blessed, which I translated praise, because that's the sense of this word. It is a word, eulogetos, which I mentioned last week, has to do with saying something good about someone, making praiseworthy statements about someone, and praising them. And so that's the idea. It comes uh, many passages in the Old Testament have phrase have have statements that begin blessed be the be god and this is how the amida which is a well known prayer in judaism always begins is with this same same phrase and so as we looked at this last time i wanted to think more about why this phrase is used in the new testament it's used four or five times in the new testament and in this particular passage, we need to understand why is it that Peter pulls this passage together in this context? What is significant about, uh, about emphasizing God and that God is God and he's the God of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? We saw that some of the other passages where this is mentioned are 2 Corinthians 11.31, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. Romans 15:6, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That this goes back to Old Testament teaching on the fatherhood of God. Last time, I did a search through the Scripture, looking. For, I did a proximity search looking for the words Lord, God, and Father in close proximity to one another. 
I expanded that search, search this time and found a number of other places where God isn't mentioned in proximity to Father, but the, but God the Father is clearly addressed in those passages. So I've included that within a study of the Trinity. And I want to go back and take us through a study of the Trinity. We haven't done this in a while, and I've added some new material. When I started this last week, I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if we just had a five- or six-point summary of the Trinity instead of taking two or three weeks? And then I started doing some additional reading and came up with uh, some new insights and some new passages, and instead of it getting shorter, well... It got a little longer. So this is what happens when you've spent a lot of time studying the Word. The more you get into the Word, the more you, the more you dig. Now, as I've done in the past, I want to start this off by looking at what we believe in our doctrinal statement at West Houston Bible Church. We have a long, we have a lengthy and technical doctrinal statement that is important because as we learn, as we study culture, that the battle is always over the details, minutia. And many people go to generalized doctrinal statements, and then somebody comes in and wants to make an issue out of something, and so um, it becomes a problem. You have to nail everything down so people know exactly what it is that you believe. So here we have our statement on the Trinity and our doctrinal statement. We believe in one God. The unity of God is significant. We'll see that. It is... Uh, when we come to the doctrine of the Trinity, there are a number of groups, Islam, uh, Jews in Judaism, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Unitarians, that reject the doctrine of the Trinity. And they just what they hear is that this is talking about three gods. Well, we're going to show from Scripture, especially tonight, that this isn't even true about the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. The Hebrew Scriptures make it very clear that there's a framework there for the plurality of persons in the Godhead. The passages that are emphasized usually in this discussion from the uh, Jewish translation, uh, the nine, I believe it's the 19, late 1980-87-88 version of the Tanakh, the Jewish Publication Society, translates one of their primary texts, which says that the Lord is one, retranslates it, and I think correctly, the Lord alone. And yet that is from the verse called the Shema, the Lord our God, the, the, that uh, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, it has been quoted many times in, in Jewish studies to emphasize the unit, it's a Unitarian monotheism, a singular monotheism. And yet, now, it's recognized in the way that word is used in other places in the Old Testament that it can also mean alone as opposed to someone, is, there it would mean the Lord alone as opposed to uh, other gods and goddesses, which fits the context of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 3. So we believe in one God. He is a unity. He is sovereign, and we list attributes so we can define God. He's sovereign, righteous, just, eternal, love, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, immutable, and truth in his essence. These all work together in his essence. He exists in three persons. What does that mean to be a person? We'll talk about that. 
exists as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Godhead are co-equal and co-eternal and co-infinite. And then we list a number of passages that support those statements. So let's look at what the Bible says. The Bible is our final authority. And in the first point, we recognize that the Bible clearly teaches that there is one God. On the other hand, the Bible clearly speaks of distinct persons that are divine. Even in the Old Testament, there are other personages that show up on the scene that are viewed as being divine. So since the Bible, since we all agree that the Old Testament uh, prohibits uh, polytheism, then we must recognize that the Bible clearly affirms some sort of plurality in in deity. So we conclude that there are distinct persons in the Godhead. This is called a plurality. Christianity does not hold to a monadic. How's that for a good word? Try to use that tomorrow somewhere. A monadic. That means that an isolated, solitary uh, thing, a, a monad has no divisible parts. It's just it's just a singularity or, or a unitary, a, a, a unit that can't be subdivided. So Christianity does not hold to a monadic or a solitary monotheism, but a Trinitarian monotheism. Now, those, that's just a lot of language to, to, which excludes Unitarianism. It excludes uh, views of God related to uh, Jehovah's Witness related to Unitarianism, related to Islam, and related to the rabbinical view of a solitary God. Now, secondly, we often speak of God as being in, an infinite personal God. What do we mean by these terms? First of all, the term infinite describes every attribute of God. He is without bounds. His love knows no borders, no boundaries. His sovereignty, his authority, his rule over creation is unlimited. His righteousness is unlimited. Every attribute is unlimited. He is not limited in, in knowledge. He's not limited in space. He's not limited in power, and he's not limited in time. Attributes we use to describe that when we talk about the fact that he's not limited uh, not limited by space, he's omnipresent. He's not limited in his power, he's omnipotent. He's not limited in um, uh, his knowledge, he's omniscient. He's not limited it by time, he is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. So this is what we mean by an infinite God. He is not uh, bound by any borders or limitations whatsoever. And he is also personal. Now, if he's just infinite, then he can be so big that, that he can't relate to individuals. If he's just personal, then he's too finite to be able to uh, rule over the universe. So he is both infinite and personal. And we have to understand a little bit about what it means to be personal. What is a person? I think it's interesting as we go through this, uh, usually... Uh, if you read theologies and you read uh, different people, sometimes you hear different pastors, they'll say, well, what personality is, and personality has to do with self-consciousness, has to do with intellect and, it, and will and emotion. They always throw emotion in there. 
I'm going to challenge that because I don't think that's a necessary component of personhood. Now, I'm going to use a fun example tonight. Mr. Spock, Commander Spock on Star Trek, was a person, but he had no emotion, right? All the Vulcans had no emotion. So, see, you can conceive of person. I'm, I'm not saying that's an authority. I'm just saying you can conceive of someone who is a person who has all the attributes of personhood, but they don't have emotion. So that is, that's my only point. I'm just saying that's a conception there. So emotion is not necessarily a component of personhood. So we often, uh, so let's put this chart on the board. On the left, I have uh, attributes that apply to a person. What makes, a, makes it someone personal is they have a distinct individuality a distinct individuality, whereas a non-person does not necessarily have distinct individuality. If you think of something that is purely impersonal, an impersonal God, like uh, like fate, that's totally impersonal, there's no individuality there. There's no identity there. The second thing is a person has a self-consciousness. They're aware of who they are. They identify themselves. They can look in the mirror and say, ah, that's me. And they can identify themselves. They have self-consciousness, whereas that which is not a person does not have self-consciousness. Third, a person has consciousness of others, not only aware of who he is, but knows the difference between himself and others, is fully aware of, of, of others, whereas something that is not personal has no consciousness of self and no consciousness of others. A fourth difference is in the person, a person has intellect. They are cap- a person is capable of rational thought, of logic, of being able to think things through, whereas something non-personal just acts there's no reason, there's no intellectual activity that is not personal. <clears throat> Fifth, a person can communicate with others, and there is a two-way communication, can communicate to others and can understand what others communicate to him, whereas something that is not personal does not communicate with others. There's n- it's not one way or two-way. And then, uh, lastly, sixth uh, attribute of person is will, able to make choices and carry out those choices, whereas something impersonal, non-personal has no volition, no will. Now, what happens if you carefully read a lot of the theologies, they all start with Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that God created man in his image and likeness. So then they go, well, what, is, what are the components of, of humanity? And they'll list those and extrapolate that back to God. What's wrong with that procedure? We're starting with the creation and working back to the creator. The creator can create a human being with certain attributes, but not all of those attributes necessarily mirror something in the creator. So you have to be very careful how you understand those terms and not use man as simply an archetype of God. As someone once said, God created man in his own image, and then man returned the favor. 
And too many people do that. They are simply creating God out of their own imagination in their own image and likeness. All right. As we go forward, we see several key verses that do, that indicate this. Matthew 11:27, which we covered on Sunday morning not long ago, Jesus said, no one knows the Father except, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. So there we have the attribute of knowledge, and one of the things you should note is that all of the verses that describe pers- the, the personhood of God also, to one, in one sense or another, define the personhood of one or another member of the Trinity. So here we see personhood in the Son and personhood in the Father. The Son knows the Father, the Father knows the Son. And we also see the attribute of will, the Son uh, to whom the Son wills to reveal him. In 1 John 1, 3, we see the attribute of communication taking place within the framework of fellowship. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. That's John talking to other believers' horizontal human fellowship. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father. So he's talking like, if I were John, I'd be talking to you and saying that... that uh, uh, we're declaring to one another that you have fellowship with us, the apostles, and our fellowship is with the is with the Father. So that shows relationship there, which shows the Father is understood to be a person capable of relationship. John fourteen sixteen and seventeen. Jesus says, "I'll pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper that He may abide with you forever, the Spirit of Truth." whom the world cannot conceive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So this indicates the personhood of God the Holy Spirit. Uh, John fourteen twenty six is another verse that reiterates a similar principle. But, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Only a person can teach you and instruct you and bring things back to your mind, to bring to your remembrance all the things that I said to you. And then John fifteen twenty six. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Again, indicating personhood of the Spirit. So these passages all indicate that each member of the Trinity is personal. He is a God is a personal God, and each member of the Trinity is personal. Now, when we get into the Bible, looking at both testaments. The Bible clearly affirms that plurality exists in the Godhead. Both the Hebrew Old Testament as well as the New Testament affirm this idea of plurality of persons in the Godhead. One God, three persons. Now, it's fun to go through the passages in the Old Testament and to see this and to see how how this is discovered there. And this was not... Uh, sort of reinterpreted out of the Hebrew Scriptures until after the Second Temple was destroyed. And there's some evidence of that in some writings, and especially in, in, the, in the early church. So the Bible in both Testaments, uh, Old Testament as well as New Testament, speak of a plurality of God. So let's look at some of the examples. From the very first chapter, uh, first of all, we have the term that is, describes God, and that is Elohim. It's a plural in the Hebrew, 
Now, you have a number of uh, scholars who try to say, well, that's just a plural of majesty. It doesn't mean that he exists in a plurality. And the problem with that is that, that Elohim says, let us, a plural pronoun, make God in our image. And the verb agreement with the plural noun and the use of plural pronouns reinforces the idea that Elohim, translated God here, should be understood as a plural. And so God isn't just using sort of a writer's we or the royal we. He is speaking of the fact that he exists in three persons. Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. Now, if this was the only example that we had of this, then maybe we would we would have to say, well, this is just a uh, one of these editorial we's. But since there are numerous examples of this in the Old Testament, that just doesn't really uh, doesn't really work. Again, in um, Isaiah chapter six, verse eight, this is a great passage. Isaiah says, then I heard, this is that chapter that where Isaiah is before the throne of God and he falls down on his face. He says, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. And one of the uh, seraphim fly out from the throne of God with a burning coal to touch his lips to cleanse him. And uh, then just a couple of verses later, he says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us. Who's he talking about here with this plural pronoun? Some people will say, well, he's talking about the seraphim that are surrounding, but that's not how God talks. He's talking about the triune person. As we will see, there are other passages in Isaiah that emphasize all three and mention all three persons of the Godhead. Now, one of the passages that is often mentioned, as I alluded to earlier in Deuteronomy 6.4, called the Shema, because that first word is a command to hear, the Hebrew word Shema. Shema, O Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, the Lord is our God, Yahweh Echad. And that last word that is translated one means alone or can also mean unity. I prefer that from the context, which is pro, prohibits uh, idolatry, that it should be translated the Lord alone. And that's how the Tanakh, the Jewish Publication Society translation from 1986 or 87, somewhere in the late 80s, translates it. So there's a Jewish translation, not a Messianic translation, a Jewish translation that understands this, that it's not t- emphasizing uh, Unitarian monotheism at this particular place. We also have uh, other examples of this use of echad. For example, in First Chronicles 29, verse 1, we read, God chose Solomon alone. Same word, God chose Solomon echad. And it's emphasizing the fact that, that this is showing his uniqueness as opposed to anyone else. He says, my son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is, uh, and the text is emphasized, he's young and inexperienced, and the work is great for the temple is not for man, but for, but for the Lord God. And then we have this use of Echad in Genesis 2.24, 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, echad. There it's talking about unity. You don't, you don't eradicate the persons in marriage. Each still has their own personality, but they are now a unity. So that's another way in which echad can be used that doesn't have to mean a singular or unitarian monotheism. Now, another group of passages that are important to understand is what I mentioned earlier, that the, that the Old Testament clearly portrayed different persons as having deity, that it's not just Yahweh, but also uh, the angel of Yahweh is viewed as having full deity. One example I'll go to first is in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 12. In Zechariah 1, verse 12, we have these two personages talking to each other in heaven, the angel of Yahweh and Yahweh. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies. Host is just an antiquated English word for army. I had a friend of mine who was in a third year of Hebrew class and had a very well-known and competent Hebrew uh, professor who argued with him when he translated from a psalm, uh, Yahweh Sabaoth, as the Lord of the armies. And this uh, professor said, no, it should be translated host. And he and the student said, well, if you look the English word hosts up, it says it's an archaic term, and it means armies. He still didn't win the uh, debate there. So we have the angel of the Lord, and here Zechariah sees this vision, and he says, then the angel of the Lord answered. So there's a conversation between the angel of the Lord on the one hand and the Lord of hosts on the other hand. Both of them have full deity and are treated as such in the passage. So there's this conversation between these two persons who are of equal stature. So the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years? Zechariah is written after the uh, uh, 70 years are up and at the time of the return of the Jews to the land in 538 B.C. And then Zechariah says, And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me. So that tells us that the Lord of hosts equals Yahweh. The Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said, Thus, proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. So my point here is that this shows that there are two distinct persons. Okay, now we're going to go back to an earlier book, Judges. One of those favorite stories we all know of Gideon. And Gideon was, uh, was out working. Uh, in the fields one day, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now, the context is the Midianites had come swooping down on the Israelites for a number of years, for seven years, and every year they would come just at harvest time, and they would take all of the harvest and leave just a, a, a small amount, just a, uh, a, just a small amount so the Israelites could survive, and they cried out to the Lord for deliverance. So the angel of the Lord now appears to Gideon, and he's going to commission Gideon to be the next judge and to deliver Israel from the assault of the Midianites. And But what we're paying attention to is the use of the term angel of the Lord. 
So here we read, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to uh, Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Now, in verse 11, the angel Lord shows up. In verse 14, he speaks. Who's he called in verse 14? He's called the Lord. So the text goes back and forth and continuously refers to the angel of the Lord as the Lord. In fact, Gideon is going to offer a burnt offering to the angel of the Lord. You don't offer an offering to any being other than God in the Bible without being slapped down. And we we remember a couple of different instances, like when Peter and James and John go up with the Lord up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and uh, Moses and Elijah show up, and Peter says, well, let's just build a little hut for each of you, which would put Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah as a prophet. And, the, you know, God the Father interrupts him and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Shut up and listen to him. I read between the lines a little bit there. But it's in the Greek. Okay. Then in verse 22, we read, Now Gideon perceived that he, that is his person, he's talking to as the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God. So he, uh, he knows the angel of the Lord is the Lord because he calls him Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. For I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him. So it's very clear the angel of the Lord is the Lord. Now, in Zechariah, we saw that the angel of the Lord had a conversation with the Lord of hosts. So there's two personages there, and here's one personage. So we have multiple persons in the Godhead. Now, another place that you can go to look, I won't go to this passage, is in Genesis 16, verses 6 through 11, when the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar, uh, uh, Abraham's concubine, and says, I am your God. The angel of the Lord says, I am your God. And that makes it clear that the angel of the Lord has all of the attributes of deity. So we see this, these multiple divine persons. We see these references with plural pronouns. And now we see some specific verses in Isaiah that also emphasize this aspect of deity. For example, in Isaiah 48:12, we read, Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called, I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Where did you hear that before? This is what is quoted in reference to Jesus in Revelation 22:13. Isaiah 48:12 says, I am also the last, the first and the last. I am the and in Revelation 22:13 we read, I am the alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. So Jesus is just quoting from Isaiah 48.12 and attributing to himself the full attributes of Yahweh in the Old Testament. But this passage doesn't stop there. We read on in verse 13, Surely my hand founded the earth, so Yahweh is talking, he's the creator. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. And then he speaks to his creation and says, Assemble all of you and listen who among them has declared this thing. The Lord loves him. He shall carry out his good pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. And then in verse 15 he says, I, even I, have spoken. Indeed, I have called him. Who? 
In context, it's talking about his servant. I have called him, I have brought him, and he shall make his way successful. And then, who's speaking here? Yahweh is speaking. And he says in verse 16, Come near to me, listen to this, from the first I have not spoken in secret, from the time it took place I was there, and now the Lord God has sent me. See, we thought up to this time that the Lord God was speaking. But it's another person in the Trinity. It's the servant that's talked about in Isaiah 40 to 66. It's the servant who is speaking. Come near to me, the servant says. The Lord God has sent me, the servant, who is treated as divine here, and his spirit. So you have all three members of the Trinity mentioned here. The Father is Lord God. The servant is the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the third person that's mentioned is the Spirit of God. So you have all three members of the Godhead mentioned in Isaiah 48, uh, verse 16. Another passage to go to is in Isaiah 63, uh, Isaiah 63:15, and in these passages where I'm going now, I'm focusing on what I talked about last time with reference to uh, with reference to one person of the Trinity being identified as the Father. In Isaiah 63:15, we read, "Look down uh, this prayer addressed to God. Look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious." Where are your zeal and your strength? The yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me, are they restrained? Doubtless, you are our Father. And the word here is uh, avinu that I have down here at the bottom of the screen. Av is the Hebrew word for Father. The N-U suffix means our. So avinu is our Father. So he says, you are our Father, Though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. So as Isaiah is, is, uh, is uttering this prayer, he addresses Yahweh as our Father. This is paralleled what Jesus will say in his, when he's giving the disciples a pattern for prayer. He starts off praying, Our Father who art in heaven. So the Father is expected to hear the prayer, to answer the prayer, and to intervene in terms of Israel's history. So it's using Father specifically in this passage in relation to Israel. We'll see that there's a whole thread of these passages that specifically refer to God the Father, and the fatherhood is with reference to, uh, to Israel. So then we see another passage in Isaiah 64, 8. All these are treating the Father as a person who hears, listens, and intervenes in history. Here we see God uh, described as the sovereign authority over Israel, the sovereign maker of Israel. In fact, I want you to uh, turn with me to Isaiah 64 just a minute because this is one of those well-known passages, the passage related to the potter, and a lot of people take this in relation to uh, salvation and that God is the potter and he's going to just make some vessels for 
uh, wrath and some vessels for honor, and he's just arbitrary, choosing some for salvation and choosing some uh, not. And this is, in Isaiah 64, we see that the context is not about individual justification. Verse 1, we read, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. So it's calling upon God to intervene into history. Then we skip down to verse 6, a passage we all know. But we are like an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Pointing out the, that, that, the, the unworthiness of Israel. And there, verse 7, there's no one who calls on your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities, recognizing all the divine discipline that has come to Israel. And then we get to the, to the main prayer in verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. This is appeal of Israel through Isaiah to God as the personal Father of Israel. We are the clay and you are our potter. This has to do with Israel's destiny being called by God as a special nation. It doesn't have anything to do with individual salvation. He's talking about a plural plural pronoun there. uh, You are our father. You are our potter. All we are the work of your hand. So here we have a passage that just emphasizes the sovereignty of God. Again, he's personal. He has a will and he is carrying out his will. And so he is pictured as the potter. He's not a created being. Now, from here, I want to go to a passage back in the Torah in Deuteronomy chapter 32. In Deuteronomy 32, we see the same idea of God's authority over Israel that we see here in Isaiah chapter 64. And Deuteronomy 32 is the... uh, at the end of Deuteronomy, and this it has to do with Moses' final prayer at the very end of at the very end of Deuteronomy. This is Moses' intercession just before his uh, the, just before the last chapter. He calls on the heavens and the earth to witness what he is saying. There must always be two witnesses whenever you are making a legal testimony, and so that is how he sets this up. And he says about God, uh, he says, Give here, O heavens, and I will speak, and here, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb, and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of Yahweh, ascribe greatness to Eloheinu, to our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteousness and upright is he. And then we skip down to our verse in verse 8. He says, when the most high, we've got 6 through 8, in verse 8, when the most high divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, this is going back in history, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. So it indicates some sort of proportion, some uh, ratio between Israelites and Gentiles. And then in verse 9 it says, For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his, of his inheritance. 
So what Moses is emphasizing here is that God has a plan for Israel. He has called them out. He has set them up, and he has divided their inheritance to them in relation to the peoples. The Lord's portion is his people. They are uh, owned by him. So that's indicating this special relationship with God. Now, one more verse here to tie this together is that, that God is viewed here, therefore, as the father of Israel. It's not just the father of all who are created, but he's the father specifically of Israel. Malachi 2.10 states this. He says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? And see, this is, there's a parallel here. Uh, one father and one God are parallel so that one father equals one God. They are parallel. So he is calling their one God the father. Well, if he's the father, that implies a son, doesn't it? Not a father if you don't have a son. So now where does this idea of sonship come from? Now, this is where it starts getting kind of interesting. Because when you look at the scripture, you look at the New Testament, Jesus is the son of God. What's so significant about that other than, as I've taught you many times, other than that's emphasizing his deity? There's something more going on here. The first time a son of God is mentioned in the Old Testament is where? In Exodus, when God calls Moses to rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt. And here we have uh, the Lord saying, telling Moses, this is what you're going to say to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. This elevates Israel to a specific position. The firstborn son received what? The inheritance, the blessing, the promise. And so Israel is elevated above all other nations to be that nation that is going to receive the greatest blessing and privilege from God. So God directs Moses to go to the Pharaoh and say, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you, res- but if you refuse to let him go, uh, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. That's the 10th plague. The firstborn in Egypt died. So there's this interesting interplay that goes on, this whole idea of the firstborn. And I'm going to tie some of that together. I think there's a lot that goes on with that concept. And uh, I don't know that anybody has fully probed it. And that's a little bit of what I'm trying to do by looking at this phrase in First Peter, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If God is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, then that means that, God, that the, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son. And what I'm trying to do here is just kind of fit that into this the scope of this Old Testament uh, this Old Testament imagery. So what we see here in is Exodus 4:22 and 23 is that God is the Father of Israel, the nation Israel, who is His firstborn. This is reiterated in Jeremiah 31:9. Now, why is that important, in Jeremiah? Because Jeremiah is the prophet at the time of the uh, Babylonian destruction, the destruction of the first temple. Uh, Jeremiah himself has to go out in exile, 
And he is the weeping prophet because he is prophesying in Jerusalem when Jerusalem is destroyed. And so he says in Jeremiah 31, 9, they shall come with weeping and with supplications I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. This is all God speaking. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. But the firstborn of God, in terms of Israel, has failed. Adam was the first he created. God is the father of, of, of Adam in that sense that he directly created Adam. Adam failed. So the descendants of Adam all failed by the Tower of Babel, and God went to plan B, and he called out a new nation, a new people in Abraham, and they become his firstborn. What are they going to do? Gentiles have failed. What's going to happen with the firstborn? They're going to fail. Who's going to fulfill the Adamic mandate that God gave in Genesis 1, 26 and 28 to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sea, uh, the, the, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea? Who's going to carry out that mandate? Who's going to carry out the, fulfill the mandate for Israel to be the, the priest, priest nation, to be a nation of priests? They're both going to be fulfilled by the same person. The Son of Man is going to fulfill that mission. He's also indicated to be the son of Abraham in the uh, Math- Mathean genealogy, which starts with, with Abraham as opposed to the Luke genealogy, which started with Adam. So Jeremiah emphasizes this, that Israel's the firstborn, but the firstborn is failing at that point and being sent into exile. In Deuteronomy... Chapter 14, verse 1, we see that not only is Israel viewed corporately as the firstborn, but the individuals are viewed as the sons of God. A plural term is used there. Deuteronomy 14, 1, uh, Moses says, You are the children of the Lord your God. Plural term. You are the, literally, it's you are the sons. In the Hebrew, you are the sons of the Lord your God. And so Moses is describing them as the banim. Uh, ben is the Hebrew word for son, so the plural is banim. And he's uh, emphasizing the idea that, that they are all uh, uh, sons of God, and as such, they should live a distinct way. That's why they're told not to cut themselves uh, not to shave the front of their head for the dead. These were things that the pagans did when they mourned because they have no hope. Uh, and the explanation is given in verse 2, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You're the sons of God, so you have to act differently. You're in a different family. Uh, you're not in their family. They're pagans. We're going to behave a different way. That's basically what God is saying. So these people were viewed individually as sons, and this is stated again in Isaiah. See how these threads run back and forth throughout all of the Old Testament. In Isaiah 1-2, uh, 
Isaiah addresses, again, like Moses, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. It's the same kind of context as Deuteronomy 32. He's calling upon these two witnesses. The, and literally, I believe this is the inhabitants of the heavens and the inhabitants of the earth, not the not impersonal uh, heavens, just the stars. They don't witness anything. The earth, the land doesn't. It's not personal. It doesn't witness anything. It's really a figure of speech for the inhabitants of the heavens and the inhabitants of the earth. O heavens and hero earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. So the banim have revolted against God, and that causes a failure of the nation, which is the firstborn son. So they are indicted in this passage, He says in in verse 3, An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Also sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. They have abandoned the Lord. Do you think that's blasphemy? This is just a side note here to get ready for Sunday morning. Do you think that's blasphemy? You think that's blasphemy? Yes, that's blasphemy. And under the Mosaic Law, what's the penalty for blasphemy? Death. Just remember that Sunday morning, okay? When we start talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We'll clear up a lot of a lot of confusion over that, but we have to understand how blasphemy is understood in the context of the Mosaic Law. So here, uh, the prophet is indicting the individuals in the nation because they have sinned against God as a whole, but they are they're viewed as sons of God. But as a whole, the the nation goes down. The firstborn fails in its responsibility. Now, when we the last point I want to make tonight. As we look at this, that God is the is also seen not only as the father of the firstborn, but he begins to be introduced as the father of the Messiah. The father of the Messiah. The Messiah is indicated in a couple of passages that are very important. For example, Psalm 2, verse 7. This is this, um, we have a dialogue here between the Lord and his anointed, the Mashiach. They're talking to each other. That indicates the deity of the Messiah, the Mashiach. And in verse 7, God declares, uh, excuse me, this is the Messiah talking. I will declare the decree. Who makes the decree? God the Father. So the Son is saying, I'm going to tell you about the decree. This is what's in the decree. And in the decree, you have the words of Yahweh. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. That's the decree. The Lord decrees that the Messiah, the Mashiach, is his son. So clearly the Old Testament predicts that the Messiah is the son of God. Then we have another passage in Proverbs 30, verse 4. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who's gathered the wind in his fist? All of these are rhetorical questions to get you to focus upon God who's done all these things. Who's established all the ends of the earth? Who's created all of this? It's God. It's God. All the answers are it's God. What's his name? Yahweh. What's his son's name? Just That just slips right in there. He's got a son. So the Old Testament recognizes 
that the Lord Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has a son, and he's the Messiah. This is also indicated in two passages related to the Davidic covenant. And in God's promise to David, he is promising that he will give him an eternal house, and you can't have an eternal house unless somebody's eternal. And so the person who's going to fulfill that is going to have to have the attribute of eternity. And so the son of David, that is ultimately the reference point of the Davidic covenant, is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be the Messiah. In Psalm 89.26, we read, He shall cry to me, referencing this descendant of David's, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. So the Messiah will recognize that God is his Father. And then in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 10, we, God says, He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So in this, we see that the greater son of David fulfills that sonship role that we have in the Scripture. So tying the imagery together from Israel, what we see is that Israel's the firstborn son that fails. Adam, the son of Adam, the first created by God, also fails. It is the Messiah who's the son of God who comes to fulfill in himself the original destiny for uh, the original destiny for man, for Adam, to rule over the uh, birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and the beasts of the field, and he will fulfill the destiny in him in his person, the destiny of Israel to be a priest nation in his royal high priesthood. Now, what we've seen in these passages is just all this emphasis in the Old Testament about the plurality of persons in the Godhead. It's not just a New Testament doctrine. It was all through the Old Testament. Now, next time, I want to come back and look at the New Testament teaching on plurality, and then we're going to look at the Son. We're going to look at each member of the Trinity here in terms of what's taught about them in the Old Testament and what's taught about them in the New Testament. And you may be surprised, but the whole, more is said about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament than is said about the Father and the Son combined. So we're going to see a full-blown full doctrine of the Trinity that's embedded in the Old Testament. And this is significant because as Peter is addressing these Jewish background believers, I think one of the things that he is doing as he mentions these different things is he's reinforcing for them the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ and the ultimate authority of God the Father as the one who is the creator. And as we see in verse 3, he's the recreator because it's blessed or praised to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who is what? caused us to be born again. A father's role is generation, and that is the role of the father as the one who regenerates us or is, causes us to be born again. Okay, we'll come back next time and go on with looking at the plurality of the Godhead in the New Testament. Father, thank you for this time to study these things tonight and to come to a greater understanding of, of how you have revealed yourself in history and how you have embedded throughout the Old Testament scriptures all of these different terms that relate to uh, the, the plurality of person in the Godhead and that it's not just something in the New Testament. 
And Father, we help, we pray that this will help us not just to know more about you, but to know you more intimately as we walk with you in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.